Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Well, hi there and welcome back to Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 292 this week. Rich Kimball here with you and we're brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, your trusted window and door replacement expert of Greater Maine. They offer free in-home consultation, and right now, buy one, get one 40% off with an additional $250 off your entire project. Call 207-275-6622 or visit RenewalByAnderson.com, the better way to a better window. A couple of fine conversations for you this week. A little bit later on, we talk with the terrific writer David Roth of Defector, co-host of the Distraction Podcast. And as always, cover a lot of ground with him. Well, we we covered a lot of ground with our first guest, the wonderful actress uh, Perry Gilpin. You know her as Roz Doyle on Frasier. She appeared in the finale of the Frasier reboot this season with Kelsey Grammer. We talked about that and more as we visited with Perry Gilpin on Downtown. Well, how have you been since last we talked with you? Good. I've been I've been good. Lots and lots has uh, gone on. <laughs> It's oh, everything's okay now. Oh, oh dear, that's that's. Was well, there was there some trouble? Well, no, we just had we we we. Oh, my mother-in-law had was in and out of the hospital for all of the summer. But oh dear, he is much better now. And uh, and then a couple other things happened that didn't end so well. So it was it was just it's just been a a very. You know, it's just been a time that people go through, right? And mm. then on top of it all were the strikes, but in a, in a way the strikes were as horrible as they were and are still. Um, it was a time I could spend where I needed to be without I, – I, there was nothing else happening. So in a way it was um, – there was that pressure wasn't on. You know, what should I audition for this? Should I meet on that? Should I do this? You know, it's like none of that was in question because nothing was happening. Let's talk about the strike and and the agreement that was reached. I mean, it was it was a long time, and I I feel like it went longer than people thought it would go, especially after the writers settled. But then you never get everything you want in a contract. But but did this provide the protections that actors need, especially in terms of things like AI? Well, you know, not everyone's never going to be happy. Like you can't please everyone, and that's a good thing. You know, there are people that have that have stronger fears about it because it will affect them more than others. And um, we all need to be uh, aware of this new thing that's coming into our lives and that we don't necessarily know it's coming. So I think it also raised awareness about AI and how it will, you know, and, and raised questions about how it will affect us all in journalism and, you know, on television and, but specifically with actors, uh, it it was, you know, there are stars, there are huge stars that will always be, you know, people will always want to see them perform. People will always want to see the parts they play and the parts they choose and the movies they do and the TV shows they do. But there are a lot of other members of SAG-AFTRA that are, you know, the, are the actors that work every day whose names you might not know. You might recognize them. You might not. And then there are people that also make a living in the background, you know, doing mm. background work. 
And all of the, the a lot of the people that do the background work were sort of being asked the way I understand it, and I may have this wrong. So I don't. I, I just think they were sort of being asked to be scanned, and then their their image could be used in the background of anything. So it was a, so we're going to pay you this much money for your body picture of your body that we're going to just put in anywhere we need it, and and you're done, you know, and um, that's. You know, that takes away an entire career from somebody or an entire livelihood from someone, you know, and um, and but then where does that stop? Where where do the rules apply with it? Say you can't use that image anymore. You need to find another one or or any of that. It's just it's just sort of dealing with modern technology, what's coming, what's changing and how are we going to protect ourselves and each other? And I think it also kind of was a big big um, red flag for Biden and our, our Congress, you know, to start thinking about how it's going to affect everything, you know, and try to try to get a handle on it, try to talk about how it's going to be regulated, if it's going to be regulated, you know, and at the same time as the guy that kind of invented AI quit Google and, and went around and spoke to people, there was a great 60 Minutes and several other ways. That I think he did a TED Talk and just kind of said what he felt like you know, were the dangers and just being really aware of it and seeing how it kind of stopped work and everything. Not that that was, not that anybody wanted to stop work. It's just, it brought it to the surface. So well, that might be a good thing. Well, yeah. Plus not to mention the the way people were being compensated for work that went to streaming services where you know, people were making next to nothing for shows that were airing repeatedly on Netflix and other services. Yeah, that the whole the whole uh, business model ha- had changed, and it had changed a lot already. And people were sort of dealing with it. And, and of course, people can always negotiate whatever they want to negotiate and decide if they want to do something based on what they're being offered or what they can negotiate. But the thing was, was that it kind of it, it the, changing the business model so much for Netflix, kind of inspired everyone to want to change their business model and it was getting you know people were it was sort of topping netflix you know getting even more uh, getting even more just different and that people had you know you couldn't the writer strike was started because the 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 lower level writers or the younger writers could not get the experience they needed to move on you know they couldn't they were kind of turning in 10, let's just say it was a 10-episode short short uh, series. What am I saying? Limited series. And they they turn in 10 scripts before shooting even began, and then they'd retain maybe one or two writers. And so, in other words, the way it's always been where writers can, you know, start to see how actors play a role and say, oh, okay, well, this would work a little better if we tweaked it here or, you know, this, this, you know, this, this woman is really, really good at this, but she's not as good as that. Let's, let's go in that direction so that we can get the most out of this character and most out of this story. And it just, they're there to, to shepherd the project and and they weren't even there anymore, Mm. you know? So that also wipes out a whole, a, a living for a whole group of people that can't, be on set, watch how actors work, watch how directors work with that, watch how their script turns into a show, 
you know, and then have that experience as they go to their next job and say, okay, well, I'm not going to write that anymore because that's really expensive and it doesn't go well. So I learned my lesson. Do you know what I mean? You just didn't get training. Right. Well, and I think of the, the stories you've told us about uh, Frazier and the, the feedback that the cast would give to the writers and that you'd have that, that give and take, which made the writing that much better. Yeah. In my opinion, it did because there was, uh, you, you, you know, everyone listened to each other with kindness. You know, it's like, it wasn't like, like, I may not be doing this right, but I just have a question. And and also you can think if the actors got that question, the audience might have that question. Right. So let's, let's address it. We're talking with Perry Gilpin here on Downtown. Well, it was so wonderful to see you back in the finale of the Frasier reboot, uh, bringing back Roz Doyle. What was that whole experience like for you? Just fantastic. It was so much fun. It really was. It was on the lot. It was fun to just go back to Paramount again. I had worked in, on one show since, and it was really, it was really, it's just fun to go back there. I did three series. I worked on the lot for 15 years. So I, I really didn't even know how much I had missed it. And it was just great to just be on that lot, walk around. It was great to be on the set. It was fun to watch Kelsey direct. He's really good at it, and I was really happy that I got to be in one that he directed. Although I love working with Demi, and I love working with other act directors, it's just it's fun to watch him because he has um, such command of the character, but also you know how he wants to tell the character's story. So it was fun, and and the rest of the, the the new cast is fantastic. They're kind and really good, and working hard, and. Um, you know, it was just funny. It was just sort of like an alternate universe. <laughs> well, I, I enjoyed the series. Uh, I thought uh, he's, well, again, he is he is Frazier, so obviously uh, that's not a challenge. But I, I, I guess I like the fact that uh, trying to take it in a new, new direction, but at the same time honoring the past of the tributes to John Mahoney uh, in, the, in the early part of the series. I, I thought it was very well done, but... You know, we were talking about streaming in this in this streaming world. You never know because some of those streamers seem to value new shows over keeping something around for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really hard to tell. It's hard to tell what's going on. I, I we have I haven't heard anything. You know, I don't think anybody's heard anything about whether it's going to do a second epi- a second season. And um, I just think those decisions are being made right now. And I have no idea. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm certainly, like I think Yellowstone has gone for many, many seasons, and didn't it start out as a streamer? It I sure did. It. Yeah, it was on. I think on Paramount. Right. So it's like you know. I think. I, I there's no way. There's no way to know. No. No. I want to thank you again for getting us together with your friend, uh, Siobhan Fallon Hogan. She was on with us a couple of weeks ago. Her new movie is so good, Shelter and Solitude. And and that woman is an absolute hoot. I love talking to her. I know. I'm so so glad. I was so glad to see that. I told her her to give you a call, (laughs) and I'm glad she did. Yeah, me too. She was great, and the movie is, is so good, and... She's got to figure it out there, doing her own thing and, and getting the family involved as well. It was great. It is really funny. It's so good. Her kids, because she, I did a play with her years ago before she got married and before, we, before either one of us had a family on our minds at all. And she, you know, she kind of 
disappeared for a while while she raised her kids. And then she just came blazing back with these great things that she's writing and producing. And she's got her kids working on them. And and when I did the first one she did, which was called Rushed, which is also really good. Mm. And uh, it was just, it was, um, she had all of her friends. I mean, everybody on the set was a friend or a relative of hers just <laughs> really working hard. And it was all good. It was really, really good. How are your two college students doing? They're good. <laughs> They're great. They're enjoying themselves. We went up to see one on Sunday, and then and we were hoping to see the other one because we knew she was in the neighborhood at a Frisbee tournament. And we got a phone call, and we looked over, and our daughter was like, look, look, look to your right. And she was, like, going down, you know, on the freeway next to us in the backseat of a car. (laughs) (laughs) But they had to go, like, five more hours, so they didn't stop or anything. We were just waving to our kid in the backseat of somebody else's car. It was really (laughs) a moment. But we were all laughing and taking pictures of each other. It was very funny. Uh, I saw you posted some wonderful artwork from your husband Christian did he have a, he have a showing recently because oh it's some phenomenal works he has a pop up this saturday that's going to open this saturday night and then it'll be up for a couple of maybe like a month or so here in LA and just a in, in a space that isn't always a gallery but it might be from now on but it's his gallery in New York has a a little space here and so it's this saturday and i he's so excited to do this here where we live and you know he's, his work is beautiful and i think it'll be fun so uh, what's up for you have you got any more projects in the uh, near future no i don't know i i don't know I, everything that i was working on went into either ended or kind of went into a different phase during the strikes so i don't know we're just kind of it's just figuring it out and nothing there's not a lot going on yet that I know of. <laughs> because I would you know, think so people is, would see you on Frasier and say, damn, that Perry Gilpin is still great. We got to get her. We got to get her in our, in our film and our TV show, yeah. whatever it might be. I know. I, you would think, you would think. <laughs> have them call me. I'll straighten them up for crying out okay. loud. Okay. All right. I will. Um, have you been thinking at all or trying not to think about the election coming up later this year? Oh, of course I'm thinking about it. There's no way not to think about it. You know, but um, it's interesting. I I think it's the uh, not everyone's happy with how things are being covered, but it does feel like things are really being covered. There's a lot like you, you can't escape that there will be an election in a year, you know, which is good. It is. But I just I, I am I don't know. I, I feel like I've got uh, PTSD. Every time I see the big orange guy on TV, I, I start to get a little twitch in my eye. It's just, it's 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 diabolical. It, it, it's something that you just, I never thought I would ever see as a child. Um, and, and I have been saying that for about six years now, but I just never thought I would see what's happening here, happening. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. How do you? I don't want to. I don't want to step on any toes here, but but we all have to encounter people in whatever work we do, wherever we go, who who believe in whatever he's selling out there. And I don't know. I don't, I've lost the ability to be able to talk to those people. I don't know what to say to them. 
Well, it's not just that. It's also um, getting into huge arguments with dear friends over things you think are obvious. Right. But also saying one thing now means that you're saying 10 other things that you didn't ever mean to say or, mm. or even think of. You know, so much has been, um, it feels like it's kind of coming from, it feels like it's coming from, in, uh, what am I trying, social media in a way, just this kind of, I, this word is being so overused, but it's it's the right, it, you know, they've someone has figured out how to weaponize a point of view, you know, and that the, your point of view means you're this, this, and this. Right. And you're, and, and, and I am going, wait, I just said this. <laughs> why do I, why do you think I think those things too? And then I realized, well, if that's happening to me, you know, maybe I'm doing that to other people, either I'm saying it or thinking it. And it's just a really confusing time. And it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like you can peacefully have discussions right now, but it feels like a lot of people are trying. And I, I hope so. But I, you know, I think, you know, we were, we were all raised to be respectful of other people's opinions and treat people the way you want to be treated. And, and that I feel like that's been devalued in the last several years. Yeah, but I, but I, and I don't know. Yes, I agree. Uh, but you just have to keep trying, you know, you just have to keep trying to, I mean, I have two kids in college and they're great kids and they're working hard to build futures for themselves, to learn what they're there to learn and to have fun and, you know, to, to enrich their lives. So I, I'm really, you know, it, I, I, I have people telling me colleges are doing this or that. And I, I'm, I'm like, I have two kids in college and that's not what's happening at either of their schools. So, or for them. So it's just so all of these broad strokes, you know, everyone's talking in such generalizations and broad strokes and, um, and, you know, people say, don't talk politics or religion, or they used to say it, you know, and then <laughs> I would always say, why, why can't you talk about it? That's the most interesting stuff. And now I'm starting to understand why people said, don't talk about that. Because if now people feel like if they don't agree with you, they can just rip you a new one, you know, and it's like, but wait, <laughs> I'm allowed to think anything I want and feel I'm allowed to believe and worship and think and do what I want feel is right for me why are we arguing about this you know but that but but it's good it's good to it's good to get past this thing where we're all arguing because that maybe the next step is maybe we can actually talk i hope so i hope people get to the point where they've had enough of the arguments and look to find some common ground Somewhere along the way, I saw a piece the other day online I thought was really good that said a lot of this comes down to, to boredom for people that, look, by and large, we're safe as a country. You know, we're not being threatened with foreign invasion or anything like that, regardless of what people think about the economy. Overall, we're doing pretty well as a nation. And so people don't have the big things to worry about as much. And so they fixate on these little differences and, and just 
again, fueled by social media, just amp up those differences and talk all about those instead of the, the vast amount of things that we all have in common and, and often view the same way. I t- totally agree 100%. And I think that, you know, because there's a lot of things weren't made for a while because of the pandemic. Like, I just mean like just entertainment things. There's mm. a lot of great stuff out there, but you know, we, a lot of things weren't made and a lot of things were made during strikes. And so there's not that distraction, you know, but then also I heard, um, I love this guy, governor Tim Walls, W A L V from Minnesota. Mm. And he was speaking, uh, I think it was either on CNN or MSNBC, but he was talking about the same thing. He goes, you know, the, the people have been spouting dystopia since 2016 and our youth is, and he was a school teacher. He was very involved in education. He's an educator and he's the governor of the state now. And he's amazing. But he was talking about this, uh, this message of dystopia being passed, given to our youth since 2016. And, um, and that it's all just smoke and mirrors and, it, it was very powerful what this guy said, and um, you know, and he was he was very much talking about the good things that are being done that no one's paying attention to now, the policies and the the things that are being at least you know worked on and, try, and introduced and talked about, and bills are being introduced, and whether they pass or not, president can't always get that done if Congress isn't functional. So, you know, there's a lot going on. That's, that's being said that's like I'm agreeing with you that is just not true. Well, and that dystopian message, my experience in working with young people is they don't want to hear that. You know, they're, young people are by nature optimistic. They've got their whole future ahead of them. And when you start preaching doom and gloom, I find they they kind of tune that out and say, well, no, I'm, I'm, I've got some control over my own life, and I I choose not to go down that road. And I don't I don't see everything being as bad and gloomy in the end times as you do. Well, I, I think maybe maybe not youth, maybe not kids that are teenagers now, but I I I know a lot of people in their late twenties and early thirties that talk about the end of times a lot. <laughs> You know what I mean? They, I, I mean, I, I have seen that and heard that, and I'm, I, I never did. I never even thought about that. You know, I thought we were past the Cold War and past all. You know, the, nobody had to have bunkers anymore. You know, because my parents talked about that, but nobody had to have whatever those. You know, wherever you had to go for if the nuclear bomb. Mm. Nobody had that. No one had that fear anymore, and so we were. I grew up in a time when. Everybody felt very free and, you know, very uh, protected and, and just everyone went about their lives. And maybe we took our eyes off the ball a little bit. I don't know, because things were so great. But now I feel like people are a lot more afraid of the environmental issues and guns and all kinds of stuff. Well, there's certainly plenty to be afraid of out there. Well, what are you doing for fun, though? Let's focus on on that. From are are, are you watching anything? Seen any good uh, movies or series lately that I should check out? Yeah, we started the flight attendant the other night. Oh, that's fun. That's very good. And um, and oh my gosh, I never can do this. I can never. Uh, the Crown was amazing. 
Um, it was so good. Uh, of course, Succession, all the stuff that, you know, I don't know if you watched the Emmys the other night. I did. The, the distribution of Emmys seemed, you know, incredibly right on and fair and the way, you know, everybody got honored, even though it was kind of strange. Like, I think the bear. Oh, the bear I is so was, great. Yeah, but they that was the first season that got awarded, so they may get some more next year. Right, the second season. Now I haven't but seen Beef. Have you seen that? I have not seen Beef. I need to see Beef. Yeah, I think I do too. First, that's the next thing on our list. We just want to finish the flight attendant. But, um, but isn't that weird to watch it that way? And isn't I mean it's not weird. It's the way it's been for years. But it's like it's so interesting that you watch something for an extended amount of time, knowing that. It's going to, you know, you're going to get through that before you go on to the next TV show. Remember when you'd watch, like, you know, asynchronously six shows a night, maybe? <laughs> right, right. And you wouldn't think about them much until the next week rolled around. You're like, oh, oh, it's it's Thursday. That show I like is on again. Yes, yes. Yes. And, the, like, kids do that kind of block. You know, they do that kind of study now where there's, they just do three subjects a day for longer. So it's like we're all shifting that's for sure. Well, Perry, it is wonderful to talk with you. As always, uh, hope uh, hope 2024 brings you uh, lots of happiness and joy and good health and all that sort of thing. I wish the same to you. <laughs> I wish I was, was Paula Poundstone. She's funny. <laughs> she doesn't get so serious. How is she? How's Paula? Yeah. Oh, she's good. I th- We haven't talked to her for... A while, I think it was maybe uh, back in the fall is the last time we talked to her, but she's she's doing well. Okay, well, good. She's busy out there touring. Um, who did we talk to the other day? Well, because I was a big MASH fan. We talked to Mike Farrell from MASH a couple days ago. I saw that on Instagram. How's he? Oh, my goodness. Right. That man, I, I love him. He is such a, he's such a nice man and, and, and so committed to doing the right thing in his personal life and fighting for causes that he believes in. I, I have so much respect for him. Oh, good. And what about Ken Burns? Was he on recently? How's he? Ken's doing well. He was on uh, in October uh, to talk about his, his most recent movie, uh, The American Buffalo. Oh, to watch that which was so much better i mean you know it was going to be good but it was such an incredible story about what we did to the buffalo and, and by extension did to the native peoples who had depended on the buffalo for gener- hundreds of generations it was no, he's great he's awesome oh i gotta see that yeah you'll like it. it's very good are you still now uh, you had a project you were working on a while back i don't know if you can talk about that is that still in the works well, there's a couple, but uh, I can't talk about anything yet, but everything's kind of in limbo <laughs> still. But as soon as I can, I will call you. All right. That and sounds good. You. Well, we'll, we'll thank you for asking. You bet. Well, we'll get you back before too long, but uh, it's wonderful to catch up with you as always, and uh, we'll talk with you again before too much time has gone by. Okay. And I if I see it. Bobby Sherman, I will mention your name. Oh, please do. <laughs> Happy New Year, Rich. Perry Gilpin with us here on Downtown. We'll take a little break for a word from Renewal by Anderson. When we come back, writer David Roth up next on Downtown. The better way to a better window. 
Renewal by Anderson. Engineered for excellence. That's what Renewal by Anderson's windows and doors have been called. And here's Troy Pearl to tell us more. Hello, everyone. It's Troy Pearl. Our exclusive replacement windows are the product of decades of innovative engineering and rigorous testing that far exceeds industry standards. I hear you're low maintenance, too. (laughs) That's a big yes. If you're referring to our products and how they compare to vinyl. And energy efficiency? Can you really save me money during the long winter months? Yep. And during the summer months, too, our products can dramatically reduce your heating and cooling costs. Great. What kind of a deal you got for me? Glad you asked. All this month, for every window you buy, you can get another at 40% off. And we'll knock an additional 250 bucks off your entire project. For a free in-home consultation, just go to rbagreatermain.com. The better way to a better window. Renewal by Anderson. What you trying to do to my heart? What you trying to do to my heart? Hey, we're back on Downtown. Our next guest, a terrific writer for Defector Media, co-host of the Distraction Podcast, and one of our absolute favorites here on the podcast and our radio show, writer David Roth, joining us on Downtown. Hey, Rich. How are you doing? Uh, well, as we were chatting there uh, before we came on, I'm cold. It's that point in, in the winter. It finally got here where you're like, you know, if it if it all ended like this, I'd be okay. Yeah, it's I, this is a conversation I was having with my wife just yesterday night about we're both kind of wondering why we were, you know, ill-tempered, feeling sort of frustrated with just things in general. And there's reasons for it. We're busy. We got other things going on. But at some point, we just arrived at the fact that we're like, this month sucks. It's just always bad. We have to stop being surprised by that. And like that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to do a better job navigating it in a way that makes us less insane. But, yeah, I'm feeling pretty January over here. It's been like 20-odd degrees, and the sun hasn't come up in three days. I don't love that. That's the worst part. Yeah, I can take the cold. I can take the snow. But it's that those long stretches of gray. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, it's one of those things where I guess this is, you know, it doesn't quite qualify as a new observation if it happened during my lifetime because I'm not, uh, you know, a new person. But it is weird <laughs> to think that, like, I was, like, in college by the time anybody had come up with the idea of seasonal affective disorder. You know, like, mm. I think people just for a while noticed that um, every, everyone drinks a lot more during the <laughs> wintertime. No one knows why. <laughs> and now it seems like we've more or less landed on the fact that uh, this month, the month after that, uh, not so great. And then that's why I'm, I think that's part of why I'm always so grateful when spring training starts up. I'm like, God, just anything. Like, show me. It's about as much like seeing green grass under sunshine at that point as it is about watching, you know, whatever Sean Manea loosen up for the match. <laughs> no, I know the feeling completely. We uh, here in New England, we're so desperate for anything like that. We celebrate Truck Day when the Fenway Park truck gets loaded up and begins its journey to Florida. People are like, it'll be over eventually. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, you can be aware of how pathetic it is and still cling to it, like, with both hands, and I 100% relate to that. I mean, I this is one of the things that I've been talking to hey, friends and coworkers about this, too, that this, this offseason has felt a little bit longer baseball-wise than, uh, you know, already it has. I think just because, like, all of our teams are sort of not really doing very much. Mm. It turns out, unless you're a Dodgers fan, there's not really that much to get that excited about. 
And so we've all just been kind of white knuckling it and being like, wow, seven more weeks, huh? That seems that seems like more than I thought. I thought it was six last week and, you know, whatever. We'll be all right. But uh, yeah, it's tough. I, I would be looking forward to truck week pretty heartily if I were you. Well, and uh, there's some pleasures to be found. In, and for me, it's uh, it's some sort of schadenfreude, I guess. But, uh, you know, the, when the Cowboys lose a playoff game, that just continues to give me joy after all these years. Yeah, I want to believe I'm above it, but I'm absolutely not. Uh, that was definitely <laughs> one of those. It was a pretty miserable game to watch, uh, just in the sense that, you know, it wasn't competitive. And a lot of the, like, there was at least one Packers touchdown in that game. The Luke Musgrave one, the uh, the pass of the tight end, I think is the most open I've ever seen anyone be in an NFL game. Oh, yeah. They had, like, to, they had to go to the satellite picture to show a defender somewhere. Right. I was going to say, like, you need the all 11 footage or the all 22 <laughs> to see where everybody else was. Because otherwise it is... The same visual as like a center fielder camped under a pop-up hit right at him. Like it was just green grass, one little guy, a ball very slowly coming towards him and nobody else. Uh, but that said, you know, it was happening to the Cowboys. So there's a part of me that was kind of like, yeah, well, I bet you get somebody more open than that. Try it. See what you can do. I, I also, for some reason, because I, I haven't minded them that much in the past, but I took a little pleasure out of the Eagles going belly up. Yeah, I there was a bunch of teams that the Eagles being maybe the most obvious example. The Dolphins are also in this class for me. That just like it seemed like it was time for them to go on vacation. Like either they had too many guys hurt, or they were just kind of sick of hanging around each other. The Eagles, I feel like we're probably can start counting down the days until whatever we get the big long reported story in the Athletic or the Inquirer or whatever about what was wrong there, but. We had Dan McQuaid at Defector wrote this like sort of running bit all year, you know, through the first eleven weeks when the Eagles were ten and one. That was basically about how upset Eagles fans all were about the team all the time, and it was like sort of a bit and sort of not because he would be, you know, like they would win a game and then he would talk, to, you know, about all the people calling into the you know, WIP, the local radio. Like, I don't really like the blocking and the interior line. Like, also, I had some thoughts about policing. And they'd be like, all right, uh, cut them off. <laughs> In this case, it's like that became, over the course of the year, went from being a bit to being like actually and unassailably true that the team was, for regardless of how good their record was, they were straight bad the last six weeks of the year. And, like, not bad in the sense of being like, you know, overmatched or whatever. It was the same talented guys that have gotten them to the Super Bowl. It was just like they somehow everything curdled at once. What happens, do you think, to Jim Harbaugh, and, and why do we care? So what I want to happen to Jim Harbaugh is that he just continues becoming more and more like Jim Harbaugh until eventually <laughs> he becomes pure light. Uh, just, I think he needs to like I want a Dr. Manhattan style career arc for him uh, at Michigan I worry that he's going to do something dorky like go coach the Chargers or something and then everybody's going to have to think differently about him but I want to believe that this I mean obviously this is his moment of uh, greatest triumph he's done the thing that everybody involved with Michigan football wants to do uh, which is not just win a title, but do it in a way that really annoys the entire rest of the United States. <laughs> and I think in this case, he's, you know, I guess he's proven 
everything that he needs to prove as a college coach, I feel like with the exception of how things ended in San Francisco, he's proven that he's a good NFL coach, too. I don't really think, unless he wants to win a Super Bowl, in which case I don't know which of the available jobs would be appealing at this point. I mean, it's like the idea that you want to win a Super Bowl, so you're going to go, what, coach the Washington Commanders? Like, just stay at the job that makes you an icon. But it's hard to tell. This is one of the things that's fun about Jim Harbaugh is no one knows how his brain works, so I, I wouldn't even guess at it. I, I have coworkers that are convinced that he's going to take the Chargers job or he's going to jump to the NFL or you know the Raiders or wherever he can go as soon as he can. But I, I'm sort of hoping he stays. Do you have any – like, have you been as fascinated by him – as I have. I know we talked about the Edmund Fitzgerald stuff the last time I was on. Oh, yeah, because he's he is he is one of a kind in so many ways. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about him that, that fascinates me and, and also uh, irritates me on a regular basis. Yeah, he's just – he's the most intense that a person can be, I think, without, like, you know, really spiking your aneurysm risks or whatever – but he's intense in such a strange and idiosyncratic way. Like, I think he's really just like this. And I don't think there's anybody else that's really like this. Like, if you take, like, Dan Campbell is a very intense, while we're talking about Michigan men, the very intense individual as well. But it's, it's worlds away. Like, he's intense like a football coach. I don't know what Jim Harbaugh is or where the thoughts come from. And so there's a great bit in um, Ben Mathis Lilly's book about Michigan football, which I recommend, uh, recommend it, but I forget what the title of it is, but whatever, the guy that writes for Slate. And he, he's a Michigan fan. He spent a year following the team around and wrote kind of a fun book about it. And he talks about being at like a youth football camp where Harbaugh and some other coaches were speaking to like, you know, middle school and high school kids. And the coaches did, the other ones, you know, came in and did their best, like the stuff that you would expect from a football coach at a football camp, you know, talk about the important respect in the game and, you know, being prepared and trying your best and all that. And Harbaugh gave a speech, which really says seemed like basically improvised, but um, very heartfelt where he was talking about how with elite racehorses, their hearts beat so intensely that you can see it from the outside. You can feel it. And it's like, it's just think about all these middle school kids who are like, when's lunch? And this weird man is either not blinking at all or blinking at hummingbird speed and being like, you got to be the horse's heart. <laughs> it's just like really gratifying to me to think about someone like that out there in the world um, not committing crimes and just like doing the, as normal a job as that sort of person could do. My problem is this. I, I need somebody to be the lightning rod for my disgust with big-time college football. So if Harbaugh goes and with Saban gone... Am I going to have to start paying attention to Lane Kiffin? Yeah, I feel like this is that's the part of it that's kind of frustrating. You have to kind of like check down to, you know, the the things that are left are basically it's boosters, you know, and mm. the general way that like Florida State University's athletic department carries itself. All of that is ridiculous, but except for I think for Dabo Swinney at Clemson, I think is an old that is a guy that <laughs> all Americans can hate. Like, whatever, I mean, like, I have my own sort of political, cultural, you know, biases that I can bring to bear on it, but you could believe the exact opposite of me about every single issue and still find a way to not like him. But 
the rest of it, yeah, it's kind of like thinning out. Like, I don't know what, like, a, what is his name, Kalen DeBoer, the Washington guy that's mm. in the Alabama job. Like, he just seems like a football coach, too. Like, he's one of those dudes that, you know, this is the only job he's ever had. He's been really good at it. He's not, like, objectionable, though, like, in the ways that your real, like, institutionalized college football presences are. I'm giving time, I guess. You know, Alabama has a way of doing that to people. Uh, we're talking with David Roth here on Downtown. All right, we're all giddy in New England about the Boston Celtics. 32 wins at the halfway mark uh, from from the outside New England perspective. Are they as good as we think? Yeah, I think they're really good. I mean, I, it's hard. You know, it's different than like in baseball where the team that wins the World Series seems to have very little to do with which team is best during the year. Uh, it's hard in basketball to do it. But I kind of feel like they they figured out ways to improve on what was already a very, very good team. And I think that the the moves that they've made sort of around the edges, I mean, like Drew Holiday is not a, a fringe play or whatever, but that like, I don't see weaknesses in the ways that even on, you know, the teams that they had that, that were good, even in the last few years, I mean, you saw like last year, it was, you know, Jalen Brown's limitations and Jason Tatum's health wound up basically being the difference, you know, and then Marcus Smart, as much as everybody loved him, there were things that he could do and there was things he could not do as well. At this point, it is like a pretty seamless hole. They play very well together. And I don't want to say that like Jalen Brown looks better or whatever, you know, like he's been really good. He's got a super max contract for a reason. It just feels, and you know, the playoffs are different. I don't see as many, areas in which there's like a risk of exposure and you know the more i watch them the more maybe i'll see it every time i've watched them they've looked like the best team in the nba to me like i just have really really been impressed. well they're not having the mental lapses or the the concentration right. issues they had last year where they they'd be up 18 in the third quarter and it was almost like they brown and tatum looked at each other and said let's let it get close and see if we can come back and win yeah and that's the sort of thing where you know good teams can do that like they can, you know, they can still win those games against teams that are less talented than them. It's infuriating as a fan, and I, I do think that it's like a red flag to a certain extent. That like there's, you know, every team is they're not going to be perfect, you know. But the way that the Nuggets went through the playoffs last year was, it's the exception, you know, to the normal rule there, which is like teams will get pushed, and you'll have to see how good they are. It's really hard to just sort of be a tick better than every team you play all the way through. And, you know, I don't know that, again, like you said, like the the mental stuff is and has always been, I think, the challenge there. You know, it's a long season. The playoffs are incredibly long and arduous. <laughs> like, even if the Celtics can manage to get through it, you know, it, with less attrition, that's been the challenge for them. I mean, I'd love to see them just play some clean postseason series. They played a lot of really dramatic seven gamers the last mm. few years and beyond taking a lot out of the players and stuff like that. I think it also, as a fan, it would stress me out. If I cared about them, I would be like, why is this not like, why are we playing seven games instead of five or four mm. every time? But I don't know. Maybe this is the year they answer that. All right. So uh, are you doing anything on social media? I know you, you kept the, the X account open, but you haven't posted in a while. Am I missing your work on, on one of these other platforms? Because I, 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 I need my fix of David Roth on a more regular <laughs> I, basis. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm on Blue Sky most of the time. Oh, okay. 
I'm, I'm on there, but on I've done it. nothing. Yeah, I think that's the way that most people, I, I think, have used it. it. There's there's some activity on there. I think a lot of people sort of, you know, homesteaded a spot with their name on it, which is what, right. I mean, if that's what you did. That's what I did, and I'm, I'm doing more on threads, and that which is not a bad place either. Yeah, so I've never tried threads. That's just because of the, the Facebook stink on it. But I've right. heard from people that use it that it is actually, like, pretty good, works fine, like, is less insane the thing with Twitter that I, I've done, I mean, this is like, you know, I don't think I deserve a pat on the back for this. I just don't look at it anymore. And I think that it's been a lot easier to do. You know, I spent, I don't even want to say it, but like 12, 13 years looking at it all the time, every day, you know, and some of it's for work and some of it, you know, eventually was just, you know, the sheer force of habit and, you know, probably addiction if you want to be clinical mm. with it. And yet there came a point where I just found that I didn't want to do it anymore, I, that I wasn't having fun looking at it and that it was more like just kind of making me sad because I was, you know, remembering the old serotonin boosts I used to get there. Right. I wasn't getting it anymore. And, you know, every bit that I see of it, I still, you know, like get sent links to, you know, basketball highlights and stuff. And I feel like that's still basically the last bit of value left in the site is that that's where you go for sports. Uh, Blue Sky doesn't have a lot of sports posting on it. It's a lot of politics and a lot of just kind of like goofing around, all of which is fine. I just, you know, I miss my dunks. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe it's without even realizing it, maybe Elmo did something nice for us and is, is helping us all find a more healthy relationship with social media. I think I think that's kind of right. You know, that like, because I think this is what it would have taken if it was the sort of thing like all of the when they were initially when, you know, Elon's long parade of swell ideas. I mean, there was one that was, you know, like, we're going to you make people pay for it or whatever, which is a classic innovation. I don't know where he comes up with this stuff. Uh, but that, was, that was one where I was like, I don't maybe I would, you know, like if I had to, like, I wouldn't want to pay a lot. But. If I need this for work to know what's going on or whatever, but but just by making the site suck, by making the vibes so bad, and just turning everything upside down in the most unappealing possible way, it actually, I think the thing that I would have needed to quit was feeling like I just really didn't want it anymore, and he made me not want it. Which is, uh, you know, I guess I should send him an edible arrangement. (laughs) Otherwise, I don't think I ever would have got there. No, I'm with you on that. Uh, Hey, I wanted to ask you this. Um, This time of year, maybe especially this time of year, where where it is kind of dark and gray and gloomy, uh, do you have uh, maybe a movie, uh, maybe a, a TV series, a book, something you go back to, music perhaps, that sort of uh, uh, soothes the soul and picks you up when you need that? That's a good question. Uh, so I was I spent some time listening through. So I had uh, COVID right before Christmas, Ooh. which is the second time in three years uh, that I've had that. Really great stuff. I did get up there in time for the holiday this time. Oh, good. But I spent some time sort of like isolating from my wife, and I was in – the you know what I call it the germ chamber, but just basically the office space we have with a futon where you can sleep if you are too, <laughs> uh, you know, infectious to sleep in a big bed with your wife. And this, I was listening through to some records that I had, like not just from college. I still have all my CDs and, and records, basically, that I ever bought. 
Um, and a lot of the stuff that I listened to back when I was in college, so this would be like um, the Gilatengo record, I Can Hear the Heart Beating is one, uh, was one for me. There's a the um, Second Ride record, um, which is a British band that I... Like, I bought the record. I don't remember buying it. I think it was just one of those things where they were, like, a, sort of a band that people I knew knew. So I was like, oh, whatever. What else am I going to do with my money from working in the science library at Pomona College? And it was kind of – didn't I wouldn't say that it, like, made me feel, you know, young or like I did in college because I was, like, very aware that I was trapped – in the office with COVID <laughs> listening to compact discs, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I wasn't going to confuse that for being 21 years old in Southern California or whatever. But, uh, it's, it's that sort of association that tends to work for me. You know, that like something that has that like close link to a happier time movie wise, the ones that I find myself watching or being able to watch whenever I see them, it's like, they're not movies that I find, up, you know, uplifting or whatever. It's easier with music. You know, it's pretty, and it reminds you of a time when you were listening to it in your life. The fact that when you said movies, the first one that popped into my head is Michael Clayton. I love Michael Clayton, but that is like, there's a lot of stuff in that movie that isn't really, like, you're not sitting there uh, sort of like chortling with delight the whole time, you know, like it's, um, no, but, uh, you know, I get that completely because for me, and I, you know, I'm i kind of the same way with music. I want to listen to something that, that takes me back maybe just briefly to a different time in life. But with, with movies especially, I love nothing more than going to, like, Turner Classic Movies. Give me something in black and white, preferably, you know, with, like, Gangsters and Richard Widmark. Yeah. that uh, Turner Classic Movies is one of the last great resources of like self-care available in the culture because yeah. it is i don't even i record stuff off of there you know i look at it we still have a dvr we got a lot of jurassic technology in the house now that i'm talking about it but <laughs> i will go through and like if there's something that i that they're showing that i've wanted to see there's a lot of stuff that is otherwise not available to stream i recorded but i've not yet watched the um John Houston adaptation of Wise Blood, the Flannery O'Connor. Oh, movie. yes, That's, yes. And, you know, I'm really excited to see it because it's like, in some ways, I don't know how else I would have seen it. It's something I've wanted to see for years, but I don't think it's on DVD and it's not, you know, airing in, on a loop on, you know, HBO or whatever. But it's just scrolling through all of those different movies with their, like, kind of ornate 40s and 50s titles and, you know, just like, I don't really have an opinion on like Richard Widmark or Barbara Stanwyck or whatever. I've enjoyed them when I've seen them and stuff, but just seeing some movie with them in it and knowing more or less that it's going to be high quality stagey and from another time, like that definitely sounds like a good way to get out of, you know, whatever mid January mentally and physically. Absolutely. Uh, listen, I have to, I have to talk about Trump world with you. And, and what I, what I'm fascinated by is Trump's orbit always, always pulls in, Strange, strange people and unique human beings that you would not find anywhere else. And, and this week, it has been his crack attorney, Alina Haba. Yeah, she's been she's been really something. She's so the one thing that I guess with Trump that you know it, it was not in retrospect very hard for him to completely bust out and take over one of the two big political parties that we have. Right? They're like the Republicans are not. They don't really exist independent of Trump at this point. No, They're, no. All of their their policy platform is, uh, you know, it's when he was running for president, they didn't have a platform in 2020. It was basically like, we're just going to keep doing it. More Trump coming your way. 
And, you know, they got their butt kicked. Uh, they lost by 10.5 million votes. And they're doing the same thing again against the same guy. Because it's, but what's weird about that is so, like, taking over the Republican Party, not hard. Like, you can come in there, you can lie as much as you want, you can do whatever crimes you want. If you have enough recognizable television fame and enough followers or whatever, that works. The one thing that Trump can't do is get a decent lawyer to work for him, <laughs> which is really fascinating. That like, it's like how much more resilient the sort of like cynical self-preservation instinct of that industry is than one of our two big political parties is. Because I think that for the most part, the reason that he's rolling, you know, your Alina Habas and your Sidney Powells out there is that, you know, as I don't think anybody's going to confuse lawyering for like the most honorable of the professions, but like you can get in trouble for lying in court. Like all the things that he makes people do, I think the the repercussions for it are way more urgently felt for lawyers. And so what you're left with is like Alina Haba, and I remember the oh, I'm forgetting her name now. There was one from New Jersey that he had in one of his other cases. Were basically like they're personal injury attorneys whose ads appear on bus stops. Like this is just like. <laughs> And I'm not to say anything that that's bad or whatever, but it is the sort of thing where, like, you'd think this is a former president with hundreds of millions of dollars readily at hand that he could pay to somebody as a retainer. And, like, I'm assuming that he's just working his way down until he gets to, like, the most aggressive ambulance chaser in whatever metro area he's in. Well, And you would think a guy who has spent as much— I was going to say, you think a guy who spent as much time in court as he has through the years would would at least have a few regulars that would stay around, but maybe you know the not paying might be part of it, and, yeah. and just putting up with his particular brand of crazy. Yeah, I think that that's a lot of what it is. I think that he he doesn't really pay, and he will get you in trouble. And so that's you can see, you know, the calculus for someone like Alina Haba, like whatever she's getting discussed on the radio in Maine. That was not going to happen unless she aligned herself with Trump. The problem is that she's getting discussed on the radio in Maine <laughs> by two people who have spent the last week being like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I, when I, did they teach you that? I especially enjoy it when the judge has to walk her through procedures here. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, like just marking stuff. I mean, this is I'm not a lawyer, right? My parents are lawyers. So I guess I would say that I'm lawyer-coded or whatever. <laughs> but it, this is the feeling of that those like holiday and express ads where it's like, if you've watched like enough episodes of, you know, SVU that you're like, you got to mark that evidence. If you're going to admit right, it, right. like anyone could do it from their couch that she's getting it wrong on TV. <laughs> like Crazy. Hey, what, what do you think is going on with Trump's hand? Did you see those pictures? I've heard it described, but I haven't seen it. Um, and I saw that James Carville says that he thinks it's syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific that we still get to think about James Carville in 2024. Oof. Can't leave that behind. But it's weird. I, like he, Trump has looked strange for the entire time that he's been a public figure, more or less. I mean, he was like a decently handsome young man with weird hair, and then he's become the uh, sex symbol that we all know and love today. <laughs> but every time I see him now, I'm like a little bit surprised by what's going on there. I haven't seen the hand. You're welcome to describe it. 
if you'd like. Well, it's just uh, you know, big uh, sores, sores on the hand. It's as if the evil is, is finally manifesting <laughs> itself in, in rot that we can all see. That's a tough one. Uh, yeah, the idea that you're, like, fundamentally going through the transformation that, like, Bruce Davison's character <laughs> did in the first X-Men movie. Yes, like, that's it. You don't really want that. <laughs> no. There should be medicine for that. Something topical even would probably help. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, it does. I mean, of all the, the things, he's done a great job in various ways inspiring extremely obvious literary comparisons. I mean, the whole, when he got COVID, that was, like, it was like he read The Mask of the Red Death and, like, didn't read the end of it. It was like, this seems fun. Like, we should throw a party. And this one feels very Dorian Gray, even though I think that, you know, like, even a story of that length is not something that he's going to finish. Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. All right, I want to bring it back to sports because your name came up yesterday. We were, uh, we were discussing a book by Brandon Bueller, Front Office Fantasies, The Rise of Managerial Sports Media. Oh, yeah. I have a galley of that. Yeah, and uh, very good book. And a uh, uh, quote in there from you about Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised by that. I like I was happy to get it. Brandon Bueller's a Seton Hall prof, right? Yes. Yes, I had talked to him uh, like just email wise about getting a copy of it, but I did not. I've done like interviews with people for books, and usually I don't get quoted, but it is the sort of thing where you know, anytime maybe someone's writing a book about people from New Jersey who are always wrong and they want to, you know, get my (laughs) way in on stuff. But in this case, it was kind of a wild quote from, I think, a Vice Sports column that I'd written, which I was delighted to see because it's, you know, at some point, I don't write about Stephen A. that much, but I've been doing this for long enough that I've probably written 10,000 words on the guy. I don't remember that many of them. So I do remember seeing the quote because I looked, you know, you look in the index and if you're in there, you're going to go see how you're quoted and why. And it was kind of gratifying to be like, oh, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> you got oh, yeah. burn it on this guy. But he's decided, I guess, much like Skip Bayless, that, and, it, and obviously right about that this is the path to, if not glory, then certainly riches. Yeah, Stephen A. is a weird case, because, like, I mean, I feel like he's constantly undergoing these reappraisals where people are kind of, you know, Skip, I think at this point, everybody's, pretty pretty sick of a bit there's just not a lot there you know he was posting during the cowboys loss you know like in a way where he was sort of like this is why i threw my dak prescott jersey oh yes this is disgraceful (laughs) everybody's and i just kept thinking like you're 65 years old man like you don't need to live like this like you've got (laughs) other stuff in your life right like you don't need to be like setting a jersey on fire on youtube like you can pay 10 million dollars a year to go on tv like be normal but he can't. I mean, like, he's in character all the time. Right. Stephen A. is a more mysterious figure because I think it's a, well, it's a more complicated performance, but it's more, like, obviously stilted in some ways. Like, he, like, likes to get really emotional about the Knicks and, like, kind of, like, tear up and make a weird video where it's, like, mostly <laughs> dark. And he's like, Julius Randle has betrayed me for the last time. He's sort of like, I don't think... <laughs> you really think that either but he's he's doing more stuff so there's more mystery there i just think the more you learn about Stephen a and the bit that he does the less appealing he becomes like he's kind of like a bit of a creep and a kook and if you can just accept him as a character who gets up there and you know starts blustering and using a lot of uh like sort of um 
clock-killing phrases so he can try to figure out where it is that he's going with yeah, whatever yeah, he's yeah. saying. Uh, not like I would ever do that, by the way. But the <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, that version of him is great. The more the closer you get to seeing the real guy, the more I, you want the performance, in my opinion. Well, so much of it is calculated, and I guess that's yeah. that's the part that I'm not crazy about because, to me, the beauty of sport is the spontaneity of it, and that includes the people who talk about it. Now, yes, if you're writing something, I want you to put some thought into it, but, but I feel like all this has been rehearsed in front of a mirror before we get to see it. Exactly that. I completely agree. And I think it's it's one of those things, too, where this is like where the it doesn't exactly absolve him, right? But the incentives of the sort of type of sports talk that he does there's you know like your mike francesa types that go on the radio and they have they know that they have to talk about like regular season baseball for five hours like i don't envy them in that regard like that's a tough road to hoe but they know what that is with Stephen a it's different because it's like he has to he can't just talk about it and he can't talk about it in a way that implies that he's surprised by something or has learned something, or is like thinking that he's wrong, you know, about something that he thought before. He has to be like not just always sort of right and always locked in on stuff, but he has to be the most all the time. It has to be like the more infuriated by a random Knicks loss, like more incensed by the idea that anybody would ever have doubted Jordan Love or whatever. <laughs> And I just think that that's like by doing everything at 11, it's like it sucks the, the fun and the surprise out of it, which, again, is like like you, I think, is the fun of watching sports is that and it's the reason why I think it's like the last thing that people, you know, watch on live TV or they don't DVR. Like if you really don't know what's coming next, that's the fun of it. And I feel like with Stephen A, like wherever he's going, like, you know exactly how it's going to go and how it's going to sound. David Roth, Defector, the Distraction Podcast. David, good catching up with you. As always, uh, I hope uh, what's left of January brings you some light and, and joy here going forward. Uh, and also to you. May Truck Day come soon. And uh, <laughs> thank you, as always, for having me on. I appreciate you. Have a good one. David Roth with us on Downtown. Great stuff, as always, from David. Our thanks to him, the wonderful Perry Gilpin, and uh, to you, of course, for joining us this week on Downtown. Brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, the better way to a better window. Downtown produced by Carrie Haskell. I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.